What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. watched this movie last night casey oh you watched it last night <laughs> yeah okay yeah i uh <clears throat> had never seen it before right and the only godard picture i've seen was uh uh breathless or breathless yeah of course which i loved i think that's the only thing i've seen you never know you might have seen another one because he's made so many um but you probably you probably remember it if you did like top like, my life to live nope um pierre lefou nope uh weekend no all right. I think I'll stop it. there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought this was a really interesting film, though. Yeah. Uh, not what I expected. What What were you expecting? Were you expecting it to be like more kind of experimental? I don't know. I don't think so because this was pretty experimental. It is, but in by, a lot of by, ways. by Godard's standards, I think it's kind of his most straightforward movie that he made. Well, which is hysterical. To yeah. Think about. Yeah, because he. Um, he he was working for the only time in his career with like uh, you know American money, right? And it was like a French American Italian co production, yeah, um, which was super common in uh-huh. in that era. Um, there was this whole like thing happening where movies were being made internationally with money from a bunch of different countries, right? And oftentimes they would stipulate that if you're gonna you know, get money from all these places. We need you to have like stars who come from all these places yeah. or include Shoot like in some of the language, you know, yeah, the locations, yeah. the language, language used and, yeah. and all the rest of it. So you get that um, sense in this. I did a little bit of reading on it um, and did see where like a, there was a lot of contention, like as far as 
forcing him to do certain things like yes. shoot in CinemaScope, which he didn't want to do. Which is I, – I read that too and that was weird to me because he uses CinemaScope a lot actually in the 60s. Post this film? Yeah. I think oh, I think this might be his first – no, that's not right because he made like A Woman is a Woman comes before this. He, he sort of – when he's going to shoot in uh, in color, he'll mm. shoot CinemaScope. And when he's going to shoot in black and white, that's when he'll shoot Academy, like 4 by 3 Right. And nowadays, all he does is like 16 by 9 But, um, you know, for a very long time— Is he, he still alive and making movies? Yeah, he's 89. Or he'll, he will be 89 in December. Wow. And, yeah, he, he had a film out—I think it was earlier this year that I, I saw it in no Atlanta. Idea. But it played last year, I want to say. Yeah, it was last year that it played in, in Cannes. But what was the name? Uh, this one was called The Image Book. Is it good? Yeah, is he still I making mean, good movies. Yeah, well, here's the thing. I mean, this is the whole like rabbit hole to go down. But uh-huh. um, his films of the '60s are kind of that's one era. That's like one period of his of his filmmaking. Sure. And he doesn't really around like 1968 after May 1968 in France, which was where there's this large student movement against the government and mm-hmm. workers got involved. There were big strikes and so on. And it kind of looked for a minute like there might be like a revolution in France. And um, <clears throat> Godard was, became like very politicized in that period. Uh-huh. He was part of a group that basically shut down the Cannes Film Festival that year and just said, why are we showing movies? We should be out in the streets. You know? right. And um, after that, he he became rapidly like – disillusioned with commercial filmmaking, which is funny because if you watch his earlier stuff, he already seems like he's highly critical of the Hollywood system yeah, and so I mean, on. Yeah, I mean, is he sort of the French Altman in some ways? Maybe so, yeah. Yeah, in terms of like wanting to be independent, wanting to kind of yeah, fuck and, the and, system. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, uh, they, they, like the French in general, like the that, that group that Godard is from, the Caillou Cinema group, mm-hmm. Caillou Cinema was like, uh, or still is, um, kind of the one of the main film magazines in, in France. Yeah. And there's a whole generation of critics who were writing for Caillou Cinema under André Bazin, who's like a real important film theorist. Uh-huh. Um, but as people like Godard, Francois Truffaut, Eric Romare, right. uh, Claude Chabrol, uh, Alain René, et cetera, um, who were critics who just wrote about films. Mm-hmm. And then they all started making films. And that was the new wave, the French right. new wave, the Nouvelle Vague. And so... Where was I going with that? What was the the point of that tangent? Uh, oh, just Godard yeah. being an independent. So they had a real they had a real love hate relationship to the American cinema mm-hmm. because they loved a lot of classical Hollywood cinema. They loved you know John Ford, for instance. Yeah. Um, well, and there are a lot of mentions in this film. Yes. Yeah. Um, about you know Rio Bravo exactly. and, the, and the posters on the Psycho was yeah. on the wall of the Italian yeah, yeah, yeah. studio. Right. Yeah. So. Um, so. Yeah, Godard always plays with that kind of intertextuality where he's mm-hmm. making all these references to other films. And he doesn't do so many in this movie. That's another reason why I think it's a little more conventional. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's not such a – like it is a film about film. It's a film about cinema. But it's also like it is telling more of a straightforward story mm-hmm. than most of his films, which are apt to just kind of break away from the main narrative and – go off on tangents right. much more. Yeah. I saw the uh, – when I was reading about the CinemaScope thing that he had a problem with it, that uh, some people say that he – that accounts for a lot of those kind of really unusual shots where he would say like, all right, you want a super wide frame? Then I'm going to throw a dolly and just ping pong it back and forth yeah, that, during that, a conversation. Yeah, at the <laughs> table where putting, it's going, going past the lamp. Yeah, and, it's yeah. kind of cool though. I yeah. mean it's like – 
why why put the people in the frame if you can be a little more playful with it? And it, it emphasizes their separation, of course, <clears throat> the yeah. distance between them, which is something that over and over visually he's playing with where Brigitte Bardot and Michelle Piccoli are on mm-hmm. like extreme opposite ends of the frame, right. almost where they're like cut off at the edge of the frame sometimes. He plays with space a lot in yeah, this movie. that apartment sequence in the middle. Yeah, well, let's hold, yeah, we'll hold keep off your on pants that, on. But <laughs> <laughs> um, it opens with, uh, and the other thing too I wanted to mention, which segues nicely into the opening of the film, is the, uh, I also read that he was basically forced to do a nude shot. That's, yeah, that's of, why that sequence uh, is there. Of, you know, the most beautiful woman in all of right. cinema, which was Brigitte Bordeaux. Right, right. Which is hard to argue. Yeah. And um, so he does this opening shot of her laying there uh, with her naked butt up. Yep. Um, completely insecure, just asking about every single body part, how, if it's okay. Yeah. With her husband. Yeah, and I feel like. like completely desexualizes. Yeah. Clearly thumbing his nose at the studio, like, exactly. all right, you want her naked? Yes. Here it is. Exactly, yes. The least arousing sexual thing you could imagine. Yeah, to really kind of just, like, completely <clears throat> circumvent that yeah. whole that whole vibe. And, yeah, almost a commentary on objectification because mm-hmm. she is objectifying herself yeah. by saying, do you like my feet? Do you like my ankles? Right. Do you like my legs? Do you like my, my thighs? My shoulders, I think they're too round. Yeah, yeah. But it also, it's not just a, a fuck you like it plays in the film mm-hmm. because so much about this movie is has to do with the back and forth power um, struggle. Yeah. Not even struggle, just who has the power yeah. in any fucking given minute yeah. in their relationship. The way it shifts constantly between constantly. them. Constantly. I'd never seen yeah. anything like it. Yeah. It was, it was a little like disorienting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it. I mean, it reminds me of like arguments or or disputes I've been in, where it's like you say one wrong thing, and then it's kind of like yeah. it just you 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 keep digging uh-huh. when you're trying. You should just shut up at that point, right? But you can't. You can't leave it alone. Yeah, and yeah. So and so, like a small thing turns into a way bigger thing. Oh sure, and not that he was any prize. I no, mean, he hits her. Yeah, he flirts and like is, yeah, he's, touches he's the other a, lady. It's kind of a jerk, but um, he he is also. Kind of like, what wh- what happened? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we woke up, everything was fine. Exactly, yeah. It's just the, the suddenness with which it happens that yeah, I but, think it kind of like, you know, he, he can't quite wrap his head around how quickly it turned. Yeah, but what, what is clear and what you'd never see and what you can only surmise as a viewer is it did not suddenly happen. Yeah, sure. And this is something that had been happening for a long time. Exactly. And he was probably wrapped up in his career or his own self or whatever. It's the early 60s and, you know, women didn't have as much agency yeah. in a marriage. So that's probably all been happening. Yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of like a straw that broke the camel's back kind of thing. I feel, it feels that way. Yeah. But I love that you're left to sort of put that together. Yeah. I yeah. mean, Godard doesn't hand you anything. No, certainly not. And I mean, he he's giving a lot in this film because he's working from this novel that mm-hmm. had a lot more kind of psychology, let's say, of the characters kind of baked into it. Okay. Because typically in one of his films, it's something, especially in the 60s, that he plays around a lot, just Uh people changing their minds suddenly or doing things where the motivation is completely obscure, like you don't know why. Yeah, Um, I noticed that. And (laughs) and it's, if you've never seen a movie like this or a Godard film, like, uh, it's it's challenging, but not in in a... it's artsy fartsy, but not in a way that feels like someone's just trying to be artsy fartsy. Right. Does yeah. That makes sense. It's just his way of being. It's just how he thinks. How yeah. he kind of like looks at the world, and he's somebody that just his mind is working like a mile a minute. Like there's there's so much going on. Yeah. Um, all the kind of intellectual, philosophical, sort of like 
notions that are flowing into things at all times mm-hmm. and the the multiple levels of reference and the film within the film and, yeah. you know, casting like Fritz Lang as himself basically, but he's <laughs> kind of that. like a different Fritz Lang in the movie, even yeah. though he has made like M and, uh-huh. you yeah. know, he, he sure. references his own actual films, but like the film that he's making does not feel at all like a real Fritz Lang film. Right. Um, well, and in the film he's being forced to make, uh, I mean, that's kind of one of yeah, the big struggles. Been compromised he by, wants to make the real Odyssey yeah. from Homer. Yeah. And uh, Jack Palance as uh, what's his name? Prokosh, Jeremy Prokosh. Yeah, he's uh, he's he's trying to make a kind of a schlocky, yeah, Hercules, exactly, and the Argonauts type of thing, right? And one of the one of the producers on the real film, uh, this guy Levine, he had made a Hercules film. Oh, really? And, so was and, it a jab? Yeah, yeah, it was kind of a jab. <laughs> and it's so it's it's so interesting that like he's one of the producers and you're kind of making a film against him, right. you know, in yeah. a way, in, in sort of a, an obscure way, but still like... He is the French Altman. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I did want to say one more thing about that opening sequence, um, the the scene in the bed with mm-hmm. the nude scene, the color filters that are placed over that scene. Yeah, very unusual looking. Starts out red, uh-huh. then shifts to white, then yeah. shifts to blue. So it's like the colors of the American flag. Again, he's oh, sort of saying like, hey, this is Hollywood that's kind of forcing yeah. me to do this. Well, and, the way he used color through all of it yeah. was amazing. Yeah, it's it's one of his best-looking films of yeah. that era, for sure. Oh, all that mid-century furniture was just making me crazy. And the shots of the Mediterranean, just like the way yeah, it's like endless blue. sea. Yeah. And and just uh, the so primary with the coloring, like the, the, the very reds. red, red robe, yeah. the very yellow robe. Yeah. Um, that those great sofas. I was just I was going crazy for the furniture. Yeah, in that, the uh, screening room that were yes. two tone. Yeah, it's like burnt orange and uh, blue. Yeah. Oh god, it was great. That that screening room. Um, the, it's not it's not translated, but uh, under underneath the screen, mm-hmm. there's a quote from one of the Lumiere brothers, who are you know one of the like inventors of cinema, basically. Yeah. Uh, there's a quote that says, uh, "The cinema is an invention without a future." Oh, interesting. Which is such a funny thing to have in like a screening room, you know? Yeah, there was a lot of little, uh, I think, clever little winks yeah. throughout the film. It's interesting, too, when you say they didn't translate that, but uh, character-wise, the the translator, yes. who was Jack Palance's, I guess, assistant slash girlfriend Yeah, slash, Francesca. Yeah, translator. Yeah, right. It, it was interesting to see what she chose to translate and what she did not choose to translate Absolutely. at all and how she chose to translate throughout the film. Yeah. Very... Um, purposeful. Yeah, it can be it can be a little maybe even grating at times because it feels like every line of dialogue you have to hear it twice. Um, but it's fascinating because yeah. it really forces you to like pay attention uh-huh. to what's being said in a way that Godard really does not do very often yeah. to like emphasize things or to have that kind of um slight differences in meaning. I mean, he plays with language a ton. He, yeah. ha- he always has double entendres and, and obscure references to things. But just the way it's done here f- to more of like a dramatic mm-hmm. character-driven effect is is really interesting. Yeah. Um, let's go back to that first, uh, not the first shot, because that's the, the nude thing. But um, then it goes to our story. Mm-hmm. And the very first thing you see, I thought was so cool. It was the, uh, it's, it was the Dolly um, shot. But not what we're used to seeing. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it was almost a reverse of that. Yeah. We're used to the camera on a dolly taking us to a thing. Yeah. Or a person. Uh, and in this case, we are stationary and the camera is coming to us. Yeah. And to the point where at the very end of that shot, they tilt down. And point right at point the, it right at, at the At another viewer. camera that we have yeah. kind of like not even – it's sort of like you don't realize there's a second yeah. camera there. But of you course there is. You forget for a second yeah. Yeah. that what you're, you feel like almost you're there. Yeah. 
And uh, if you step back on, on the set and you think about the two cameras like yeah. staring at each other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's really yeah. kind of kind of a cool thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting shot. I love that the, the credits are just read like verbally. Yeah. yeah. Of course, we see it as text because they're subtitles. But, yeah. um, you know, if it was a French audience, you would just be hearing the names of the people. Yeah. And, and the kind of like laid back ways like so-and-so did the sound. Sure. Raul Couture <laughs> did the photography, you know. Based on a novel by this guy. Yeah. yeah. The, the other cool thing, though, is when when I see that, uh, I mean, film equipment has changed and technology has changed, to be sure, but so much is also the, the exact same. So the dolly and the yeah, technology sure. is the that, same that thing. That has not changed, yeah. And the camera, uh, the camera, the... Uh, when he's spinning oh, the... Oh, the, the, um, the geared head. Yeah, the yeah. gear heads. Yeah. It's like it's still all the same stuff. Yeah. It's so cool to see something from the early 60s that you will find Still on the set up. today. Yeah. Because the dolly is perfect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a big heavy sled with wheels yeah. on a track. There's There's been, you know, a lot of technical innovations in that, but there's still no substitute for, like, yeah. a, just a legit dolly. For with sure. Like, some grips to push it and yep. some track. And That's right. There's just nothing else like it in cinema. People power. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so then we get our setup, which I never realized. Um, and, in fact, there were quite a few things that I noticed that I was like, oh, that movie totally stole from this oh sure um and i don't know I, I i looked up a few of them to see if i could find the link and i didn't see anyone mention barton fink interesting yeah but i'll show you the, the left whole, of the mind the whole like idea well, whole of the writer was, yeah bring yeah. in a playwright yeah to write this hollywood script give him some of that barton fink that feeling he's totally fish out of water yeah and doesn't know what to do and Absolutely. has uh an internal struggle struggle about whether or not to do this yeah and that's sort of where it leaves it and barton fink becomes different but i don't know if the seed of that uh film yeah. for the Coens came from I know. This. I mean, I know the Coens were thinking about real-life instances, like I think uh, Faulkner. Uh-huh. You know, sure. uh, there's a character in, in Fink who's kind of like based on that. And it was when they had Riders Block yeah. working on, uh, which one? Was it Miller's Crossing? Miller's Crossing, yeah. That they'd knocked out Barton Fink. Yeah. But that initial seed was too similar yeah. Uh, yeah. To not have gotten, uh, sure. you know, some sort of inspiration, I think. Yeah, and just, just the idea, the, the, the larger theme of like, like prostitution is like a big yeah. thing that recurs in a lot of Godard's films, and it's not just what we traditionally think of as prostitution, yeah, like selling sex. sex. Work, sure, it's it's you know selling any part of yourself uh-huh. that you know selling your labor, selling your time, devaluing selling your yourself, cre- creativity. Even yeah. um, that's that's what the Michelle Peekley character feels like. He's like, I'm I'm supposed to be a playwright, you know. I'm supposed yeah. to be doing the stuff that like capital M matters, you uh-huh. know. And now they've got me out in Hollywood and yeah. I'm, I'm doing these things for the money and the pay is great. And, you know, it, it allows him to have like, a apartment. lifestyle, pay off the apartment, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, he just, he feels restless. Yeah. And um, that's his first film too, right? I read that. Uh, who, Michelle Piccoli? That's what it said. And uh, I don't know about that. I, I think in the Roger Ebert article I read. So that was his first. I, I would be shocked, but, but perhaps so. What else has he been in? Well, he's in a lot of, um, a lot of films from that era. Italian films, I suppose. Or? Yeah, Italian films, French films, um, and he's actually still around today as really? well. Yeah, uh, he was great, man. Yeah, no, I <laughs> love, I love Michelle. The hat, wearing the hat in the bathtub. He yeah. never took it off. Yeah, the the Dean Martin, yeah, some came running like reference. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's our initial setup. Then we meet Jack Palance at the studio, Chinachita, with another great long tracking shot, which is kind of like. It's not literally the shot we're looking at during the credits, but it's right. sort of the same, yeah. you know, it's the same location, same setup with the dolly and everything. Uh-huh. 
which is kind of interesting. But when we see it during the credits, it's just Francesco walking. Right. And then, yeah, when the film begins, suddenly it's Michelle Piccoli, Francesca, right. and Jack Palance. And Palance's entrance in, like, that whole first bit is so great. It was so funny to me when I when I saw this for the first time because really my only, like, knowledge of Jack Palance. City basically, it was, well, yeah, City Slickers <laughs> and, and Batman. Oh, and, sure, sure. And the time that he, like, did push-ups on the stage at the Oscars. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, those were like the the reference points I had for Jack Palance. So it was funny to see him you know, my way brother, younger and earlier. My brother worked with him. He was an AD on City Slickers too. Oh, that's awesome. And was it was like one of those things where Palance was you had to you had to mind your P's and Q's. Yeah, he was sure. cantankerous. Yeah. Exactly how you would think he would be. Yeah. Uh there was one story where uh, Scott was trying to because, you know, your job as a second AD, go get him from the trailer, right. walk him to the set. If it's an old man like this, you're out in the desert, yeah. you know, uh, look, look out for the rock, Mr. Palance, yeah, yeah, like yeah. stuff like that. Right. And he'd like totally tore him an asshole one day <laughs> about like, yeah, I see the rock. I can, I can oh, walk there on my own. Oh, no. One of those yeah. kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. man, you were actually yelled at by Jack Palance. That's pretty great. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's like. He did the thing, you got the T-shirt. Yeah, he, he's, I mean, he wasn't too bad of a guy or anything, but he was pretty cantankerous. And apparently but, he it was contentious, you know, obviously oh, really? contentious with Godard as well. So he was as a young man. As, yeah. That's just his uh, personality, I guess. Yeah, I think, I mean, he came from a whole different school of acting, a whole different era of cinema. Sure. It's like they've got him out in Europe and he's making this art film. And yeah, I was This director who that. like speaks in riddles uh-huh. and, you know, it's just like. probably confused. Yeah, he's probably just kind of like, what am I doing here? You know, what is this thing? This, what a Face, this though, picture's man. gonna stink, you know. Like yeah. young Jack Palance, yeah, so handsome and like that square, powerful, yeah, and like, just yeah, menacing. Uh, and he, the way he plays this part is, uh, I mean, not this movie could have been so different in someone else's hands. Sure, this story, yeah, but this is so not straightforward because yeah. it's Godard. Like you're trying to figure it out half the time. I always felt like I was behind yes a, yeah. a few minutes that's that's always the case in his films and especially with like the density of the references they're, yeah. they're constantly kind of quoting from like dante and yeah. um homer of course and um holder lean comes up at one point and for me it's very difficult when when a quotation is kind of broken up over several subtitles yeah and there's maybe other on-screen action happening in between right it's very like there's something so slippery about it. It's very very difficult to retain yeah. and to actually kind of like figure out what the significance of them saying that was, if there was, if they yeah. weren't just kind of you know like hanging out and quoting stuff. Repeat but, viewing is yeah yeah key a lot of times for but, that. But but his films, especially as they as they progress, um, there's this sense in which you are like you said perpetually like behind the film mm-hmm. and and just struggling to kind of catch up, keep keep up the pace. Yeah. He works a lot more um, in, in his other films with multiple layers of sound mm-hmm. and having, you know, characters speak over each other. Yeah. Sometimes a voiceover comes in over a dialogue and they're mixed so that you can kind of hear both, again, kind of like all Right. Um, but, yeah, sometimes he'll have, you know, one voice coming out of the left channel, one voice coming out of the right wow. channel, different languages. Yeah. Um, all kind of like bumping up against each other. Uh-huh. And, you know, there, there's like a critical um, tendency to want to slow things down right. and like account for all that stuff. Uh-huh. And and I think there's there's certainly merit in doing that. But at the same time, I also think that sometimes people kind of miss the forest for the trees in terms of like the overall effect right. he's creating where he wants you to almost be 
like overwhelmed with meaning, overwhelmed yeah. with significance. Just sit there and take it all exactly. in. Exactly. It's, it's almost like music. maybe try to figure it out later. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. And his, his later films especially are so dense with like illusions and you just, you have to have like a doctorate in philosophy, right. like, you know, to really understand some of the, the things that he's, he's talking about. And um, the, the, again, like I think some people look at those films and they say, well, this is just, I give up, you know? Yeah. There's, there's no way I'm going to understand this. But he also at the same time has so much like formal beauty uh-huh. and, and just like the, the musicality of things, yeah. his use of sound as a whole, mm-hmm. um, you know, becomes like interesting on its own terms without having to like get down and yeah. like check every reference he's making and so on. Right. Yeah. And I thought the uh, speaking of music, just the the use of that beautiful score, Georges Delarue. Yeah. Um, when it would come in, I mean, it was it was all over the place, <laughs> and it was it almost at times felt like a joke. Exactly. Like yeah. a little bit of a tongue in cheek oh, yeah. use of it. Oh yeah. And then I read afterward that you know this even described as a comedy drama. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, okay, because I picked <laughs> up on a couple of things. Yeah. I was like, is this supposed to be funny? Or, I, or I just sort really of like, laugh out loud. I mean, there's a few moments. That I mean, are definitely pretty not funny. laugh out loud. Yeah. But I think a little tongue in cheek, clever. Sure. Uh, you know, Godard messing with people a little bit. Yeah, there's there's definitely moments like um, Jack Palance has a, has a few really good line readings. Yeah, like where um, when when <clears throat> Michelle Piccoli has been late to arrive at Jack Palance's place, and yeah. he's kind of floundering and he's trying to explain in like terrible English what happened to him. Uh-huh. Jack Palance just kind of listens and he's like, yeah, you know, he, right, right. He like lowers the shades <laughs> over his eyes. He's just like, yeah, man, you're you're in trouble. I, you are you are you are in the doghouse. They have that uh, first in the screening room, that great scene. Yeah. And talk about over the top. I mean, he's just uh, – when he's throwing the film cans <laughs> and even does the, the discus move at one Fritz point. Fritz Lang has that great line. He's like, finally you get the, you know, the feel of Greek culture or something like that when he does the discus throw. The, oh, right, the right. Ta- the film reel. Well, which is funny though because he also messes up later when he gives him the book of the great uh, art of Rome. Yeah. And he says that <laughs> – The Odyssey is Greek. The Odyssey is he's Greek. Like, I know. He's I know. And then she translates. <laughs> he says, I know. <laughs> There was so much yeah. of that wordplay with the translation going yeah, on. Yeah. It's kind of fun. Uh, but then we finally get uh, uh, Bridget Bardot, uh, or Brigitte Bardot, Brigitte Bardot, brought into that world. And from the moment, you know, he peels around the corner in that sports car, yeah. you just sort of know yeah. what's going on. But it's not overt. Well, He's it's like, not overtly flirting, but yeah. you can tell just by the nature of big Hollywood producer – bombshell screenwriter wife what's going to happen it's yeah even like you said when the car first pulls around the corner you know it it physically cuts the two of them off Michelle Piccoli and Brigitte Bardot it comes in between them Uh it passes between them at like kind of like a high speed and it's kind of Godard is he loves to use car sounds and that's something that car horns and engine sounds and you know things revving up that's something that like happens over and over and over again in his films oftentimes the car horns are mixed like just painfully loud yeah um weekend especially there's this tracking shot that goes on for like 10 minutes of this traffic jam (laughs) and it's nothing but car horns for like 10 whole minutes and people (laughs) yelling at each other and it's kind of like a metaphor for like society you know kind of falling apart he's the the consummate art house filmmaker he really is yeah it's hard to get much more arty you know than godard although not in like a, a a boring sort of like uh, I don't know what what you would call it, like like Jim Morrison, uh, yeah, college, yeah, exactly. There's nothing like sophomore about it. <laughs> it's very like, like I said, it's it's not an affectation for him. It's just yeah. his culture. It's just you it's know, interesting his, though, his world. Like I wonder what he, 
or and maybe you know this. I'm sure you've read uh, plenty about him, but I wonder what his his intent is and his. I wonder if he cares about entertaining an audience. Sometimes, no, certainly not. No, I don't. It's think a he totally ever, different way of filmmaking. Yeah, then. I don't think he ever has. I think. Um, I think he's been quoted as saying, "Like I make films to pass the time," Interesting. Uh, which he's he's known for his sort of like provocative aphorisms sure. and things he says about cinema that he may only like half Poking really the bear. believe. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. But um, but no, he's he's always had um, I think a, a rather like antagonistic yeah. attitude towards the viewer in some ways. So I mean, interesting. At, at a deeper level, he's making films. He he said this like later on in life that he's he's making films for like a few hundred people in the world that <laughs> Casey and that kind of are on the wavelength others. and like you know that like the hardcore cinephiles, the people that yeah. whatever you know that that's like who he has in mind. He's not at all thinking about like trying to have a commercial success. Yeah, it's kind of Terrence Malick esque. Yeah, sure. In some sure. ways, and I I mean I think both both filmmakers are really like. I think there's such like a, a generosity there if you're on that wavelength right. of like he's just – there's like a real sincerity behind it. Uh-huh. Um, I don't think he's somebody that wants to – like he's not setting out to alienate an audience per se, I don't think. I right. don't think he just wants – Like, like this will really confuse everyone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. I think I think the films would fall apart and get really tedious and boring and uninteresting. I don't know that he's thinking about them at all. Yeah, I think the, he's the just – I mean, he's obviously making the film he wants to make that yeah. he would want to see that. And that's it. And, you know, he, he, like I said, he began as a film critic and he has largely not written film criticism since he started making films. Mm-hmm. He, he has a little bit, but he kind of says that now his films are his film criticism. So, right. like, when he makes a film, it's, that's his statement. It's like his statement on what he's been seeing lately, mm-hmm. what he's been thinking about, wow. the filmmakers that maybe he's responding to at that time, and the ones that he's also reacting against. Yeah. Um, and then, even later in his career, like in the 80s and 90s, he starts to make what are properly called like essay films, uh-huh. which are almost more of a hybrid between documentary, narrative, oh, interesting. and just kind of this freeform like spoken word uh-huh. kind of essay on cinema or on history or, or Are so they good? On. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're fascinating. Like Eastward du Cinema, um, he worked on for, I think, well over a decade. Wow. It's this compendium of all these different clips from the history of cinema. And he calls it Eastward du Cinema. Um, Eastward in French can mean either history or story. Mm-hmm. It's the same word for both. And there's like a, an S in parentheses at the end of Eastward. Which also suggests like it's not just one history. Oh, it's like all these different yeah, yeah. angles on history. And right. it's like a per it's a and very personal yeah, it's yeah. a very personal history because it's not like, you know, the film one oh one where you just kind right. of start at the beginning and move linearly through it. Right. It's it's very heavily weighted to his own life, his own kind of you know, thoughts on cinema, what he considers important. Uh-huh. And he obviously ignores vast amounts of cinema that you know, in in a more kind of film study sense, yeah. you should probably be talking about but, right, right. Um, it's yeah, it's it's all just about his own. It's almost like his own autobiography, like through the cinema. Right, that's awesome. Um, so they go to uh, Jack Palance's uh, house, his estate or whatever, um, his which villa. Is, yeah, his villa, yeah. which is gorgeous, uh, one of his villas, and uh, there's this. There's this tension going on that you don't know where it's coming from, really, because he's not overt with anything. Mm-hmm. He's not overtly flirting with her. Uh, uh, the uh, who's uh, Piccolo? Yeah, Piccoli. Yeah, Piccoli. He's he's hardly paying attention. Yeah, which is part of the problem in the right, marriage. Right. 
But there's tension between everyone. Yeah. There's no one feels comfortable mm-hmm. um, or comes across as comfortable. Sure. Uh, the, the, the assistant woman, she doesn't feel comfortable. She doesn't seem very happy. Well, she knows. She sees what Prokosh is doing with Brigitte Bardot, that he's got his eyes on her. Right, but it's still not super overt. Yeah. Yeah, it's very subtle. But I think, like, for instance, when Michelle Piccoli goes in the house to wash his hands. Right. And he notices that Francesca has, like, been crying. Uh-huh. I think that's because she kind of picked up on that, like, Prokosh has kind of got a new love interest or something. Right. And, of course, this beautiful blonde comes in and obviously it's a threat. Yeah. Even if there is no uh, overt fl- flirtation going on. Um, but that that whole sequence, you know, there's... There's this stuff like I said, Godard doesn't hand you anything. Like he hands you so little, you wonder if you miss something. Sure, oh, sometimes, of yeah. Um, because there's that period where he's inside uh, with her, the yep. playwright, yep. and um, whatever it's like thirty minutes or something passes. Yeah, and, and he comes back out, and you think that maybe something had happened uh, because everything changed after that. And that's yeah. what uh, you know. We'll get to the apartment argument. Yeah, but a lot of that was like, what happened when I was gone? What happened? Yeah, and. There's no flashback. There's no – you don't know. Did he, something happen? At one point, like, Michelle Piccoli, he walks over to Brigitte Bardot. She's she's flipping through that book of art. Right. And he's kind of, like, he's kind of rubbing her, her leg. And uh-huh. he's, you know, he's, he's just trying to reestablish, like, right. some rapport there yeah, and kind yeah. of be like, hey, what's the matter, you know? Uh-huh. You've been acting funny. And he says to her at one point, he's like, what, did he hit on you or something? Right. And she just says, why do you ask me that? Yeah, it's not confirmed. Yeah. But you, I think something did happen, probably. Well, I think I think her response, "Why did you ask me that?" is sort of like, "Yeah, he probably did," you know. Right. And you you should have seen that coming a mile away. Yeah, yeah. Why did you let me get in the car with him? Well, you know? and are you using me exactly? Like I, I did read some criticism of the film afterward, and uh, that was very much one of the things that everyone touched on was. The fact that she was upset because she felt like he may have been using her. Pimping her out. Yeah, kind basically. of pimping her out. Yeah, I mean, I think that when like having seen the movie a bunch of times now, I think that really is literally the key moment when um, when they're going to go from, you know, that first location mm-hmm. to the screening room. Right. And they have to drive over there. And he goes with her alone. Yeah. And Prokosh says, you know, get in the car. And then she gets in and then uh, Michelle Pigley goes to kind of sit in the back and he goes, oh, no, you won't be comfortable back there. Yeah, you know, just take a taxi or do something. Yeah, yeah. I don't really care. Or we'll, we'll, we'll drive back and get you or something. So does he give into that too quick? He gives in way and too like, quick, yeah. Sure, sure, Because she's, she's looking at him. To like rescue and she's, her? And she's saying basically, yeah, and tell him no. Tell him that we will both take a taxi and we'll see him over there. Right. But instead, you know, she's, she's kind of looking at him. She's just giving him a look with her eyes. Right, right. Like, hey, help me out here. Like, uh-huh. just – I don't want you. I don't want him. you to to say yes to this. And Michelle Piccoli's reaction is is completely just like nonchalant. He's just kind of like, no, that's fine. Go, go. Yeah, but that's interesting because when I read that scene, I I am that husband going. Yeah. Oh no, it's fine. Yeah, just, yeah. Just get in the it's car. Like I trust like, you. It's fine. Trusting and like, what's the big deal? Yeah. Uh, but she sees that as an offense. Yeah. Yeah. They're 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 completely. They're looking at the same situation in two completely different ways. Through and I the think whole that's, movie. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that is like the grand theme of yeah. the film is like people seeing things differently, uh-huh. how that translation, yeah. how language can can really obscure like the true meaning of things and um, and how people can be at, at cross purposes and talking past each other and right. not communicating even though there's just like this like never-ending flow of words 
but it's oh, like yeah. the inability of language to truly capture yeah. like what's what's going on in a given situation. And of course, that even flows into all the conversations and debates that Fritz Lang and Prokosh uh-huh. and Pikali have about you know the meaning of the Odyssey, the interpretation of the Odyssey. Yeah. That like Fritz Lang wants to stay true to the spirit of the original. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, this was written at a time when people were very simple, mm-hmm. when when the world was very literal. Things like meant what they meant and they mm-hmm. were what they were. Um, there wasn't all this like neuroses and double meanings and, and sort of passive aggressiveness and yeah. all that. And, um, and you know, Prokosh wants to make the film modern and he wants to basically make kind of like a psychological right. version where maybe it's about uh, the hero Ulysses like and his wife Penelope like having marital problems and right. that's why he stays away for 10 years and all yeah. this kind of stuff. And It's, it's very playful like, the way they use the Odyssey yeah. to mirror kind of what's going on in this story. Yeah. And Fritz Lang is just kind of like, well, no, that's not the Odyssey then. Yeah. That's, that's something different. And the, the, the Francesca character is like the embodiment of that as well. The yeah. way they say things in one language and she has to translate it. And when she does the translation, sometimes she does leave things out or sometimes uh-huh. she changes yeah, the meaning yeah. of things. And it's that all was that. really cool. Yeah. Every time Jack Palance um, has an invite or something, he said, you know, ask her if she's going to do something, something, yes or no. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> he's like, he's, he doesn't want any of the... The fluff. Exactly. Like, yes or no. Just very binary. Every single time. Just very like, yeah. So um, all this tension is set up, and it, it's really a film, and it's a prologue and then three acts. You sure. know, you have the yeah. prologue with the nude scene. Right. And then these three very clear acts. And that whole second act is uh, – it's it's pretty intense, but it's, it's one of those things where he's playing with space. Yeah. He's playing with words. You you talked a second ago about how they're talking uh, in this film, but they're they're not. No one's acknowledging what the other's saying right. in this middle part and the, the entire film. But this whole middle section of them two in the apartment, they're just talking at each other, yeah, and they're not acknowledging what the other's saying and then responding to that, yeah. And it reminded me of a lot of stuff. One of the things that really reminded me of was, and I'm sure he had to have gotten, but is the Bru- uh, the Butch and Fabian hotel scene in Pulp Fiction. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When they're just in there and it's like, you don't know how much time is passing. It's kind of unclear. Right. They're just sort of talking at each other. Yeah. And uh, then I looked up, of course, and, and Tarantino is hugely influenced by Godard. He called his production company Band Apart for yeah, a long Band time. Yeah, Band Apart, and, exactly. Yeah, that's that's a whole, that's a very interesting, like, tangent, Tarantino and Godard, because Godard kind of hates Tarantino. Oh, does he? He's, he's made multiple statements because I think in the, obviously in the early 90s when Tarantino first appeared on the scene with Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, yeah. and, um, made a big splash at Cannes and so on. Uh, Pulp Fiction won the Palm Door. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, suddenly there's like this new breath of fresh air in cinema. Yeah. Like everybody suddenly wants to be Tarantino and you have all these like oh, yeah. lookalike movies. Totally. Uh, a lot of which were terrible, I think. But of course, Tarantino himself. You didn't like things to do in Denver when you're dead, uh, well, or two days in the valley. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, or like Boondock Saints or Boondock whatever. Saints. Yeah. Sure, the list goes on. Yeah, and on. Um, yeah. I think Tarantino is is sort of like Nirvana in that the first the thing in itself is great. Mm-hmm. Tarantino is great. Nirvana is great. All the sort of like wannabe imitators not right. so great. Yeah. Um, but. 
Yeah, people started asking Godard, like, oh, do you like Quentin Tarantino? Because he called sure. his production company a band apart. And, yeah, you know, yeah. he says he, he, he loves your films. <laughs> and there's, like, references to your films uh-huh. and his movies and so on. Like, the, the haircut that uh, Uma Thurman has in Pulp Fiction uh-huh. is uh, very, very similar to Anna Karina's haircut. Right. Um, who was kind of Godard's muse in the 60s. Yeah. They were married for a number of years. Uh-huh. And, um, and even in this film, Contempt, when it's Brigitte Bardot, um, as this film is being made, that's also when Godard's own marriage to Karina is kind of like falling apart. Oh, uh, really? And he has her in that apartment scene put on the black wig. Yeah, the black wig. And that is basically, that's literally like the Anna Karina hair. Oh, so he has Brigitte Bardot dressed up like his wife that right. he's fighting with, you know, when he's not on set. <laughs> but um, did he poo-poo Tarantino and was he just like, no? Well, he, yeah, he poo-pooed him big time. Um, he, he basically, I mean, he, Godard has made a lot of provocative statements. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he he does not really like fundamentally respect what Tarantino is doing. I think he a lot of people want to draw comparisons between the two mm-hmm. because they both draw on so much film culture, yeah. references to things like meta textuality in their films and uh-huh. so on. Um, but, you know, Godard thinks that Tarantino does that in like a gross American Hollywood. Right. Of course he does. Commercial capitalistic way. Sure. And, you know, for him, it has nothing to do with what he does. Right. And Tarantino is just like a fan of a lot of different films. You know, he's yeah. a fan of like the really high art stuff like Godard, but he also loves the schlocky stuff. Oh, yeah. He's he's not precious about the kind of films that he will praise. And I think. What was Tarantino's response? I don't know if Tarantino has really said much, although I did notice on. Hurt. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he probably did, but I don't remember him really replying very much to, you know, when he was asked about this. Because it has happened over a number of years. Like, yeah. this this has been an ongoing thing. Sure. Even, I think even when Godard was promoting maybe um, Goodbye to Language, which came out in, like, 2014, mm-hmm. I, I believe he gave an interview where Tarantino came up and he called him a, uh, what, like a faucon, a, a pulvertif or something, which is like a... Just kind of like a jerk, kind of like a, <laughs> a schmuck or something. Um, I'm laughing. So the yeah, the, uh, the 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 um, the the conflict goes on, and and I did notice on like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like it's a different production company name now. Oh, it's really? not Band Apart anymore. Yeah, <laughs> he finally got rid of it. Yeah. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Managing your diabetes just got easier. 
The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without painful finger sticks. So you will always know which way your glucose is headed. An arrow shows you where you're heading, up, down, or steady. It can even alert you before you go too low or when you're too high. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM available, you can make better diabetes decisions about food, medication, and activity in the moment. And all those little decisions can lead to big results. Results you can see, like more time and range and lower A1C. With Dexcom G7, you can manage your diabetes with confidence. Get started with the number one recommended CGM brand by doctors and patients at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com compatibility. So, um, yeah, I mean, let's talk about the apartment scene. It, it's really long. Um, not much happens but sort of a lot happens at the same yeah, time. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, they could have called the they could have called the film "Should I Go to Capri?" <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> should I go to Capri? Should I should I rewrite the script? Yeah. yeah should I go? Should, to Capri? should I take this job? Should I take this job? Yeah. Because that is so much of what is going on. And why don't you love me? Yeah. Because yeah. you love me this morning. Yeah. What the hell happened? Yeah. What did it's I do? Such an interesting like yeah. thirty minutes of film. And it's like there's there's almost really nothing else like it, except in, in Breathless, actually, there's a sequence kind of in the middle of that film where the two of them, like, finally, like, go to, like, a hotel room or, right. or, or something. And they're kind of in there for a long time also. I don't think as long, but maybe 15, 20 minutes of screen time. Yeah, but the Breathless had such an energy with all the jump it's, cutting Yeah, exactly. Stuff. It's way more frenetic. Yeah. And, um, this actually feels it's, – it's a style that's kind of unusual for Godard to, like, stay in one – time period like that yeah. in like real time. But it, it, it's funny because it is real time, but there's this weird sense of how much time has passed yeah. at the same time. Yeah, because it does feel like sometimes maybe there are like ellipses and things that maybe it's it's jumping forward a little bit or... But it, it's pretty much real time. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, it's sort of like you're just seeing the inner life of a relationship kind of play out, you know, and you're seeing yeah. all the ways in which they're kind of like having little snipes at each other and... And how they're broken yeah, in yeah. so many ways, but not in some, like, depressing way. It's just sort of like... Ugh, this this relationship just, is kind of done. They're misfiring. Yeah, yeah. There's there's no connection. There's there's no trust. The no. way The way he, um, you know, he quizzes her, like, you know, I called your mom's at lunchtime today yeah. and she didn't pick up. And then when they're later, when they're in the apartment and his, her mom calls... It's obvious he that says he she's wants. Not here. Yeah, yeah, because he wants to. That. He wants to say like, uh-huh. "Hey, so what? What have you done today, or something?" Yeah, and just kind of make sure her. the stories line up. Yeah, and that's when she, you know, she like kicks him, and she's like, you "Shut know, the door!" And yeah. she won't even talk. And she's front like, of him. "If you start up with that, I will divorce you." <laughs> like, yeah, don't start. Yeah, yeah, it really goes bad uh, quickly. Um, you know, she said she's, and that's what with the passage of time, like she's. One of them's taking a bath, and the other one takes a bath, and then she says, I'm moving out here to sleep, but it's yeah. daytime. He looks like he's getting ready to go out. Yeah. So I was completely disoriented as to, like, what time of day it was. Um, it, it could have been morning, for all I know. Yeah, I think it's like, to me, it feels like it's, like, mid-afternoon, because by the time they're done, and they actually, like, do go get in the car and go to that that screening, Yeah. it's, like, evening at that point. Right. So I think it's kind of like we, it's like sort of like we we watch their afternoon kind of after yeah. their morning. Um, 
But as far as her like going to the couch, I think that's more just kind of like she's saying like I'm going to sleep out here from now on. Yeah. Um, but not necessarily that like it's nighttime. I'm going to bed now. But it's just her her way of like withdrawing from uh-huh. you know the relationship. And, and it's all set up for later, I guess, when she does want to go to bed. Yeah. But there's it's also so confusing because there's so much. <clears throat> there's so many. They say so many things that. Um, counter what they had just said. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't love you anymore. And like at first it's him suspecting that she doesn't love him. Yeah. Uh, and she's like, what are you talking about? Then she's basically saying, I don't love you. Yeah. And he's like, but you love me this morning. But then she's like, forget everything I said. Yeah. And is that look uh, one of what admiration or I, I don't think, does yeah. it say contempt? Um, she, she says, she uses the word contempt, le mépris. Uh, I think she says je te mépris when um when she's going to leave when okay. she's like finally had it and she's walking down the stairs uh-huh. and she says you know basically I don't love you anymore I hate you yeah I I you I I can't feel anything for you right other than my intense dislike of you yeah so so harsh yeah yeah what is what is the magic here that's like because when you're watching it as someone who's never seen much Godard like me and um. I'm looking at it through the lens of trying to do the show, so yeah. I'm really studying it. But sure. a casual viewer might be annoyed at that scene. Oh, for sure. Think nothing happened. Yeah. Or that was fucking confusing. Yeah. What is the magic of it that is so like, Compelling. why am I thinking about it today? Yeah. Because nothing does happen much. And it is confusing. It's true. And it does feel like he's fucking with the audience yeah. a little bit. Well, I mean, I think you do have the the use of space, like we've been saying. Like, it's so... It's like a master class in blocking and, and the usage yeah, of... it's like a stage play. Yeah, of, of the space to really emphasize and, and intensify mm-hmm. the disconnect that's happening verbally in the relationship. They feel trapped. Yeah, yeah. It's, a big, it's like a big apartment, but it feels very claustrophobic because yeah. there's these two people there that are absolutely not getting along uh-huh. and that are just like on each other's nerves constantly. And I don't know. I, I think there's. I think there's something very relatable about that. Maybe. I think. I think um, there's. I, I think, in a way, like when when I first saw the film many times, I identified more with the Michelle Peekley character. Mm-hmm. I kind of identified with that dilemma of like, really, what did I do? Like, yeah. what what was so bad that that right. suddenly like the whole marriage is falling apart? Um, now I tend to see things a little more from Brigitte Bardot's perspective. Uh-huh. I can at least understand all the reasons that she has for suddenly really not liking her husband anymore, beginning with the thing, you know, with Prokosh in the car. Right. Um, but also I think a, another key thing is the way that um, Pikali wants to defer to her mm-hmm. on what to do about should we go to Capri, should I do this right. job or not. I think really – for her, what it feels like is that he's not a man. He's not somebody that decides yeah. that has like integrity that is is guided by his own like principles. Right. But instead he just wants to placate her. So he's like, yeah. whatever's gonna calm the situation down, right. I'll do that. Just tell me and I'll yeah. do it. You know? And she's like, just make up your own mind yeah. about something. Because it's not like I don't even I think she wants him to be principled. I think right. that's a good take yeah. on it. Yeah. She doesn't want to be told what to do. Yeah. Because even though she's asking him to tell her what to do. Right. It's very tricky. Yeah, yeah. Because earlier in the film, she says, has that one line where she said, basically, like, don't ask me. My husband makes those decisions yeah, for me or something yeah, like right, that. Yeah, right, right. And she says it with with spite. Yeah. So 
she she's almost insatiable in that she wants him to make the decision, but she also has contempt because he's right. making these decisions for her. Yeah, it's like it's it's so many um, contradictions. Yes, and I think that's part of what makes it fascinating and kind of maddening to watch because yeah. there isn't a lot of consistency. There isn't a lot of um, there's there's no logic. It's yeah. it's it's purely emotional. It's intuitive. And it's but very, that can be the case very fluid. Though. Absolutely, I think that's the case more time than not, more often than not. Yeah. In in a relationship, it's not about what's logical. It's just about right. how how people are feeling, really. Yeah. And like when you try to tackle a problem like that with pure logic, you don't get very far. Like it doesn't. No. You know, you can't you can't like reason your way out of something like that. Yeah, and and oftentimes in a relationship, one person is coming from a place of emotion, and one person yeah. is coming from right. a place of logic. It's that it's that conflict. Yeah. And um but I think um yeah, I think she wants him to be to assert himself. Right. And I think that like I said, I think he's a character that is just he's kind of lost his way. Like uh-huh. he's he's a little bit unsure of who he is, who he wants to be. Yeah. And to her that plays as weakness and it plays as right. well, you know, a bad kind of vulnerability where he's just kind of like wishy-washy and go with it and yeah. She's just kind of like, who am I married to? Who is this person? Yeah, it's interesting casting, too, because she, I read up a little bit more about her. Um, she was not shy with men. Right, right. Um, had a, a series of marriages and a series of affairs. Right. Like her first marriage, she had like two different affairs. And then during one affair, she cheated with another man. And I think she was married to like Roger Vadim at one point. Roger Vadim, they were who married. Who made And God Created Woman, which is sort of like she what? She cheated what? on him twice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that film is, came out in like the late 50s, and it was kind of like... You know, it it sort of was a revolution in terms of sexuality on the screen, yeah. And like the the sensuality of Brigitte Bardot and just like her body and the way she moved and the right. way she like behaved and so on was just kind of like, boom! Here is like modern woman, you yeah. know, um, liberated, like overtly sexual, right? Not what we're used to seeing in uh-huh. like classical Hollywood. Yeah, she's kind still of alive too. I didn't realize she's still alive. She has not. She has not been involved in filmmaking since the early seventies. Yeah, she's she's one kind of those um, that kind of like dropped out of the industry, mm-hmm. and she's uh, she's had a really like uh, <laughs> problematic life after um, oh, after yeah? after the cinema. She's um, she's an animal rights activist, okay. but she's also like extremely. Um, like kind of racist, xenophobic figure. Oh, really? She um she identifies like supports the the far right in France, the the Le Pen government, oh, which is kind of like um very nationalist um anti anti immigrant party. Right. And she's she's uh been fined in France. They they have fines for you know making statements that oh, could really? be you know uh, <laughs> described as like inciting violence or racist or whatever. Oh, wow. She's been fined like five times. We should get on that. Yeah. 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 I know. Right. <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, the the scene is just, it's unlike anything else I'd seen in movies, yeah. how long it goes on. And we keep talking about how they play with space. There's something about, and if you've ever been in a relationship where you live with someone uh, or you're married and live in the same place, obviously, uh, the, the claustrophobia of being in an argument and chasing each other around the house, basically. Right. Yes. I'm going in here, then yes. they come in here. Exactly. So I'm going to go in here. But th- it's not singular in this movie they're they're kind of chasing each other around the yeah apartment. sometimes sometimes one pursues the other and then the shoes on the other foot and yeah. the roles reverse and you know now it's him trying to get away from her uh-huh and then you know some time passes and suddenly it's it's flipped and the power shift again is yeah. just constant the constant ebb and flow and um 
the the kind of the playfulness of her like reading from a Fritz Lang book right. in, in the bathtub or him wearing the Dean Martin hat and so on and mm-hmm. her wearing the wig to look like Anna Karina. And, him putting on a toga essentially. Yeah, and kind of like yeah, become like a classical <laughs> Greek like figure. And, yeah, um, and it's yeah. so good. Yeah. Oh, man, that, that red, red couch. Yeah. And again, with the red robes and the yellow robes, like those primary col- colors are just like jumping off the screen. It reminds me, the, the red furniture reminds me of the red furniture in 2001 when they're on yeah. the, that station before they get to the main base. Yeah, yeah. But um, where they have like that conversation, um, it's that kind of, yeah, Godard was like very, very um, into super bold primary colors. The production design for all of his like 60 film, 60s films uh-huh. are um, have that have that kind of color palette. And, um, yeah, they just kind of pop off the screen and there's something very like pop art, almost like, uh, like comic book about them. Mm-hmm. The, just like in terms of the boldness and the kind of the, the graphic nature of the frame is yeah. very, very interesting. Yeah. What, I mean, just what a sequence and, and did read a, a little bit about it, like I said, and is it's revered in film history. It's yeah. just one of like one of the most amazing sequences of film. Yeah. Um, where nothing happens. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> another film that, you know, that Godard, I think, was was being influenced quite a bit by that he references overtly in this film, uh, Roberto Rossellini's Voyage to Italy or Voyage in Italy, uh-huh. um, which is on the marquee when they come out of the screening later on, the, the one that they go to at night. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like on the marquee. There's posters and so on. Um, that's a film that Rossellini made with uh, Ingrid Bergman, mm-hmm. um, who he was having an affair with. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it's about a marriage that is falling apart, and it's about a couple that goes to uh, Italy on vacation as sort of like a last-ditch effort to kind of right. save their marriage, mm-hmm. kind of. And they're, they're there for other reasons, too, but that's kind of the unspoken goal of the trip. Uh, for Capri? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And um, and so, yeah, it, 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 again, it's that film, Voyage in Italy, is kind of credited with being like one of the first, like, truly quote-unquote modernist works of cinema yeah. where it is about, a you know, it's not the happy Hollywood ending. It's about mm-hmm. uncertainty and things not working out and right. and, and basically um, just watching this, uh, you know, what was once like a loving relationship, yeah. you know, come to its end essentially. Yeah, but without much melodrama and um, there's not a lot of – she displays a bit of emotion. He displays hardly any. He's he's just playing confused most yeah, of the time. Yeah, other other than just kind of persistence. There's there's the yeah. whole red herring with the gun. Well, yeah, that's what we need to talk about. Yeah. The, uh, this, um, I mean, talk about a red herring. Chekhov's, you know. Yeah, I mean, sort he, of he just reversing like, that. Not only reverses it, but like gives it the full fucking middle finger. I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, he just inexplicably takes this gun from behind <laughs> some books. Yeah. And you're like, all right, well, Oof, what's going to happen? And yeah. I fully, I, I did not know how the movie ended, uh, and we'll obviously get there. But I, I fully thought. He would honor that, yeah. You know, You're right, right. time-tested tradition, yeah, yeah, and kill them both in yeah, Capri. Yeah, I was waiting for that. And I was like, "When's he going to shoot him?" Yeah, When's he gonna yeah, shoot yeah, him? yeah. And you're you're kind of like there's there's even a moment later on where um, uh, I think it's Francesca like says like, "Oh, here I found your gun" or something. Yeah, and, and gives and it Fritz to him. Lang was like, you know, you shouldn't play with guns. Children, or children shouldn't play with guns. <laughs> it's a very cutting comment. Well, but it's interesting that he doesn't use it because I think that is that character. He's not even man yeah, enough to do right, that. Right, exactly. He's, he's not, not going to shoot anyone. Not not that it would be, quote unquote, heroic, but he's not yeah, part you know of like I mean. the active, right. you know, like decisive tradition. Uh-huh. He is 
just indecisive and neurotic and he can't commit to anything. Everything is reactive. Yeah, and so he would never take the initiative to, no. like, shoot somebody. He doesn't have that much gumption. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, like, the, there's a detail when they're when they're arguing in the apartment that she notices he has a, a membership card to the Italian Communist yeah, Party. Well, oh, is that what that was? Yeah. Okay, I wasn't and, sure. And she's like, you didn't tell me you signed up for this. He's like, oh, yeah. that's a few weeks ago in Paris I joined. Um, which I think is, it, that's a very interesting thing because... Again, it's a big thing in a marriage to not yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. And also, um, I think it's it's just another indication that yeah, they're they're not communicating, they're yeah. not talking. He 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 does something like that, and he doesn't even mention it to her. <laughs> and also, um, it shows that he it shows his own inner kind of contradiction still mm-hmm. because on the one hand he's sort of like. I can make all this money and buy this nice apartment, but right. on the other hand, he's like a member of the Communist Party. I mean, the, the, obviously, there's there's um, there's a long tradition of people pointing at people that are on the left and being like, "Oh, you have a house! Like, how could you do that?" Right. You know. Um, but but really, like, he does seem like he is. He's kind of he's motivated by wanting to provide this this like. Uh, glitzier lifestyle for her, and he and he even says that yeah. outright a bunch yeah. of times. Yeah. Like you know, I, d- I took this job it's for like, you. I'm doing basically. it just for you. I'm, if I do this job, which I don't want to do, it would be out of love for you as a sacrifice right. to make to to provide for you. Right. And she's kind of you know she she says at one point like we were fine when when yeah. you were just the struggling p- playwright and and yeah. we didn't have any money and I was a typist and it was you know we loved each other we we had a, a great relationship then. Um, and like now there's, there's money, there's things, but Mm -hmm. like, it's not the same. We like, you're, you're kind of missing the point if you, if you think that it's just about these materialistic kind of concerns, it's, it's the really for her, like she wants like a genuine relationship, not to just be like provided for, you know? Yeah. The other thing that it reminded me of, uh, the apartment scene especially was Hal Hartley's early stuff. Sure. I don't know if you've seen much of that. What have I seen of Hal Hartley? Yeah, yeah, like Trust or... Um, Trust, yeah. The Unbelievable Truth. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Hartley is super um, influenced by Godard. Yeah, you could tell. And my brother hated Hal Hartley movies. He's, <laughs> and uh, he would probably hate Godard, but he was just like, I don't get it, man. They're all, they're just talking around each other. And no one's acknowledging what the other's saying. Yeah, and yeah. It's sort of melodramatic at times. And the, Yeah, the, I, like Hal Hartley, I love his his music that he composes Yeah, uh, under the moniker of Ned Rifle. And yeah, yeah. Uh, um, yeah he... Hartley draws also a lot on like the 80s films of Godard mm-hmm. where there are these very deliberate static framings that again are very much like uh, almost like panels in a comic book or mm-hmm. something where where characters are one's looking off this side of the screen the other's looking this other way they're yeah. they're clearly not connecting and 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 there's there's definitely like a a superficial not a superficiality but like a, a phoniness in yeah. a way like an artificiality to it um, that is deliberately meant to interrupt any kind of like um, hypnotic connection we might make with the film where right. we forget we're watching a movie and we just become engrossed in it. You know, his Hal Hartley's definitely always trying to kind of force us to remember we're watching a fiction, we're watching a movie. Right. This is kind of... You can't get lost in a Hal Hartley yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah, because you're constantly reality. like your your concentration is always being broken up by yeah. these indicators that what you're watching is a movie. Yeah, yeah. it's always one level back from real life. Yeah. Uh, there's this weird artifice. Yeah. Uh, arty artifice. Yeah. There's a there's a great, um, great interview that Godard did with uh, Hal Hartley oh, really? in the early 90s, I think around 95 or so. Hartley, you know, had had given interviews and, and uh-huh. talked about how much he loved Godard and so on. And Godard was actually very fond of some of the early Hal Hartley films too. Yeah. 
So he's like, That's we cool. should we should meet and talk, and and they did, and they wrote it up, and um, it's a fascinating interview. It's really really good. You can you can find it on the internet. Um, and then even more recently, Hal Hartley actually did a commentary track for one of Godard's films oh, that was issued well, again on Blu-ray. Sense, then. Uh, Hail Mary! It's it's a great great commentary. Yeah, I'd like to see um, some good old school Hal Hartley because trust, simple man, unbelievable truth, surviving desire was the yeah. other one that I yeah, couldn't yeah, think yeah. of. So love those movies, and then he did the sort of trilogy with the Henry Full, Faye Graham, right? Um, and I guess was Ned Rifle the other thing? Yeah, yeah. Ned Rifle, I think, is the third part of that of that series. I did like Amateur, actually. Yeah, now yeah. Amateur's cool. At it. But I want to. I want to. I don't. Know, I kind of like flirt too. But I, d- I would like to see him go back and do sort of just that old school Hartley Godard type of thing again. He did. He did one. Um, Somewhat recently, I think called Meanwhile. I think that's the title. Oh yeah. Um, that that to me felt like a little bit of a return to that. I'm that looking form. here. Uh, yeah, like eight years ago. Yeah, I did not see that one. I tried yeah. to get him on the show actually. Yeah. Oh man, that would be that'd be great. Was he not responsive? Um, or? I did get some response from someone in his camp that like he he would have done it, but he couldn't or something. It no. wasn't like a firm no. It was uh, like, hey, maybe so. Try. I would, so I would say try, I again. Need to he's, try again. He's he's pretty uh, approachable. I, I had a, like a little bit of correspondence with him because he's he's done um, several Kickstarter campaigns. Oh, where to like fund? I think uh, Faye Grimm was was kickstarted. Um, maybe Ned Rifle too, and uh, and he's also sort of he's he's purchased the rights to his films, so that now he's like the distributor owner for them. Yeah, and so he has kickstarted like restorations and Blu-ray releases right. and all that kind of stuff. So when he made one of his films. He actually had this thing on Kickstarter where you could buy the distribution rights for these different countries. Really, and they were going for like not that much, you know, for for like a film. Uh-huh. Uh, so it was maybe like five, ten grand or something really? to buy and like the distribution, distribution rights for like France. <laughs> and so I wrote to him on Kickstarter. I was like, you know, I'm I, I know nothing about film distribution, but I'm kind of tempted to do this. And he's like, no, please don't. <laughs> like, right. if you're not like, you know, I don't want my film to just be like unseeable because yeah. somebody bought it because for, Casey for the heck of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then they actually made him take those down because there's this whole other thing with Kickstarter where you can't really sell like points or uh, yeah. whatever. Sure. You know, you basically have to just say, I'm sending this money away with no expectation of right. return other than the bonuses or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual-wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. 
Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without painful finger sticks. So you will always know which way your glucose is headed. An arrow shows you where you're heading, up, down, or steady. It can even alert you before you go too low or when you're too high. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM available, you can make better diabetes decisions about food, medication, and activity in the moment. And all those little decisions can lead to big results. Results you can see, like more time and range and lower A1C. With Dexcom G7, you can manage your diabetes with confidence. Get started with the number one recommended CGM brand by doctors and patients at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatible. So, in the end uh, of that second act, we, and I can't even remember now who fucking decides, or do they decide who's going to Capri? It just Is that even established, like, or are they just in Capri? Well, they come out of the uh, of the of the theater where they've been watching that weird onstage performance, right? And when the music would stop, yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So cool very good too. art. He does yeah. that all the time. And um, yeah, there's a line, sort of like it does seem like they've just kind of decided they've 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 less decided than just kind of given up, given right. in, right? You know, because she's kind of like ask my husband, right? Yeah, she says ask my husband, and then um, she has this line where she says, you know. Uh, it's not, I think it's something like, it's not you that's forcing me to go to Capri, it's life. It's just right. life. It's life. It's just, it's just the course of things, you know, it's just yeah. the way things are going. It's just kind of the world as it is. Right. That's why I have to go to Capri. And the next thing you see basically Cuts is... Cuts to her on the boat. Yeah, her, her face. Uh, back back with the, the that, blonde hair again. Yeah, and that blonde sunglasses. hair and that just blue, blue water behind yeah, her. Yeah, yeah. And that amazing villa. Yes. Where they shoot this this film. Yeah. Um, with a crew of like five people. Yeah, it's a small crew. <laughs> it's kind of funny. And Godard is actually playing the uh, the assistant director. I, I the guy saw who's that. running around with the bullhorn and, yeah, and yeah, you yeah. know telling everybody to get in their place and right. so on. Yeah. Um, the the third act is uh, I, I, it feels like there's more suspicion going on, but again because it's Godard, it's not some overt. Like he doesn't, he uses that same score. He doesn't use any like heightening of tension. There's, yeah, there's very, it's like that one cue over and over and over, over again. and over. Yeah. Which is beautiful. Oh yeah. Uh, but it's not like, he doesn't do with music what you normally do with right. his, like, here's how you should feel yeah. right now. Often, I mean, in this film, he actually more or less lets the cue play out. Mm-hmm. Every time he kind of brings it up, like you do get to kind of enjoy it and it plays out. In a lot of his films, he'll start up like a very beautiful piece of music and then just cut it hard, like mm-hmm. right when you're kind of getting into it and it's like going nicely with the images and you're yeah. kind of getting lulled into this like sense of like immersion in the film. Yeah. And then he'll just hard cut it again with like a car horn or cut to a right. different scene or something. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, it's like averted cinematic pleasure, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, He's like, are you enjoying this? Yeah. Stop it. It's like too bad. Yeah. Um, that music cue, though, um, Scorsese used it in uh, Casino. Oh, really? Which again is another Which film part? about it's uh, it comes up like several times in the film. Oh, it's but for instance, familiar. but it also comes up uh in that scene where uh De Niro is driving out to the desert to meet Pesci uh-huh. and there's like that there's like these these really wide screen shots of the uh, desert yeah, and the sure. car is going across it yeah. and that's when the contempt theme is playing. Oh. But it's also he has like this like drum solo mixed in at the same time. It's really cool the oh, way wow. the two tracks are kind of like it's like a mashup, uh-huh. you know. Um, and it oh, works no, really well. But then there's that. other times in Casino when it's like 
um, just De Niro and Sharon Stone arguing about whatever that the cas- the the contempt theme oh, will start wow. to play. Why is this called contempt? I think well, I mean, it's it's is it, it, is it contempt for one another? Is it that literal? It could also be contempt for Hollywood filmmaking. You know, right? Um, contempt for like the role of money in the world. That 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 speech that Michelle Peekley has, where it's like. Why does so much of what we do have right. to, you know, derive ultimately from money? Like, why right. can't we just be what we want to be, which yeah. is kind of the world of like Homer that they're kind of, in a way, yeah. sort of, sort of com- contrasting with. And I love that Palance this whole time is. Uh, I think he thinks that Piccoli is just a silly man. Yeah. Um, right. Clearly doesn't have any respect for him. Yeah. Or like his art or craft. When 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 Pigali kind of makes that big speech at the end, and he he's expecting to have his moment of catharsis, and everybody just kind of just shrugs it off. Yeah. You know, Fritz Lang literally kind of looks at him, and just like shrugs his shoulders, right. and he goes, "Well, one must suffer." You know. <laughs> yeah, that's in most movies. That would be such a big moment. Yeah. Yeah, that was so great. Um, but you know, then again, like when they when they do meet at the very end, uh-huh. when he's telling him goodbye, and he's yeah, going to yeah. leave, he does say like, "I hope we see each other again soon." Yeah, so that was I kind think, of a like, nice moment. I think Lang, his attitude towards Piccoli is a little bit sort of like maybe I recognize a little bit of myself when I was younger in you, right. that kind of feistiness. Yeah, and while I find it ultimately be a little juvenile, uh-huh. like I do get where that's coming from, and I know that. Later in life, you'll uh-huh. mature and, you know, you'll you'll maybe have, like, a little more balanced perspective on things. Yeah, it's interesting how little uh, – there was a lot of talk about the writing, but there was so little of it. Yeah. There were there was that one scene with him at the typewriter. Where he's writing, like, a, a play or something. Yeah. It's not even yeah. – there, There's no scenes of him anguishing over writing this thing. Right, right. And you never see him writing this thing. And the whole time I was like, has he been writing this thing? There's a, has he delivered a script? Yeah. Like, what's even – the status of this thing. Well, there's a there's a point in the apartment where um, he mentions like there's a screening going on. He's like, we should go to the screening. Maybe it'll give me some ideas yeah, for, yeah. for this movie. And she says to him, like, you know, why don't you just get your own ideas? Why yeah. why do you why do you have to steal other people's? That Which, was a pretty sweet burn. <laughs> yeah, it's a sweet burn, and it's it's a commentary Godard is making maybe even on himself because uh-huh. so much of his cinema is like responding to other other yeah. filmmakers' work. Very little of it seems to, like, exist, emerge from, like, a vacuum. Yeah. It's all, like, part of a, a larger conversation. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so she kisses Jack Palance, and uh, the way he shoots that, you get the sense that she looks out and sees her husband looking oh, yeah. in. It's, it's meant to be seen, really. Yeah, but the way he frames it is even a little bit confusing. Whether they can see each other or not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, You're yeah. not totally for sure yeah. until it's confirmed, but he doesn't go down there and scream at her. And, yeah. And she doesn't even seem to be in love with Jack Palance or anything. No, I think I think she's Feels doing like it. She's bored. Yeah, she's bored, and I, I feel like she's doing it more as a way to provoke him. Yeah. She's using Jack Palance to kind of get back at Michelle Peekley rather than right. that she herself is. But at the same time, I think she does what she likes about Jack Palance is that he is like the polar opposite of right. Paul Michelle Peekley. He's beyond decisive. He's yeah. He is like yes no. he's so ego. Yeah, he's so ego driven. Where he says, you know. I like gods. I know exactly how they feel. Yeah, you know, that line. Um, he, yeah, he's he's the complete exact opposite of the husband. That he's just pure decision, pure action in the world. Right. Um, his zero. suit is always buttoned up. Yeah. His tie is always perfect. Whereas, yeah. her husband, his tie is compl- you know is always unbuttoned and like yeah. half pulled up. He's like a cartoon of like the kind of nineteen fifties like right. You know, white collar like uh, you know. Um, worker bee kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. It's just kind of like straight shooter, 
company hats guy. On, yeah, hats tilted on. Back, exactly. Chomping on a cigar. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Michelle Peekley is is this kind of like neurotic, intellectual, full of self doubt. Yeah. You know, uncertain, like what he like all that. Yeah. 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 Um but the whole Capri sequence is interesting because not a lot goes on there either. Like you finally get them kissing. And so all this like, is there anything really even going on? is sort of confirmed. Right. And you do get, I, I feel like that is not only confirmation, like that's not their first kiss. No. It doesn't feel like. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah it feels like they've kind of, there's been something before that. Yeah, probably. Like the, it's almost like there's this whole movie going on that you never get to see. Right. Right. Yeah. Which can be frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, he asked her when when he gets to the you know the first house, mm-hmm. and he's he's been delayed in getting there, and like half an hour's gone by, and he asked her, you know, did anything happen while I was gone? Right. And she says nothing special. Yeah, which could mean <laughs> nothing happened, but it could also be her cutting way of saying, like it's nothing special for a man to hit on me. Right. That's just that happens every day of my yeah. life. You know, nothing totally special. Did. I'm used to being hit on. Uh huh. Um, There's so much left to the viewer to just sort of figure out or not. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, but, you know, after that kiss is when, I mean, everything kind of goes downhill from there. Right. You think he's going to, you know, she brings him the gun and you think oh, it's no. totally Here going go. in that direction. It's funny. He he mentions to to her before that, just before that, um, he's like, I saw you kissing Prokosh. And she goes, I know. Yeah. And that's it. Like, there's no. Away. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. When she jumped in the water uh, and was skinny dipping, I yeah. thought he was going to shoot her. Yeah. I think you're meant to. I think you're meant, you know, the first time you see it all throughout that whole sequence where he's having his big I quit speech. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, when when they're walking outside and he even kind of grabs her and he says, you know, just just tell me, like, what's wrong or I'll hurt you or something like yeah. that. And she's, she doesn't feel threatened by no. him at all, though. Although she, you know. Even though he did hit her. When he when he slaps her in the apartment, she says, you scare me, Paul, and it's yeah. not the first time. Right, right. Um, which is, I don't know, like that. Like this, like the physical violence in the film is something that I think was meant to be taken more at face value in 1963. Yeah, probably, you know, it was it was more like a movie convention. Yeah, um, it plays very differently, obviously today, where it's like, sure, the first time that could be the end right there. Oh, you know? sure, yeah. And but he doesn't even seem, and it's weird to talk about like hitting your wife like this, but he doesn't even seem into it. <laughs> like, no, it's just kind of like. What you do or something? Yeah, it's like yeah. He doesn't even, even seem really angry yeah. or like uh, abusive necessarily. And I think I think it's like I think he I think this is another commentary Goodard is maybe making on like again like the hypocrisy of that character. Yeah, that he fancies himself like this intellectual progressive leftist, like in favor of the working man and so on. Yeah, and yet he's a wife beater. He's you know he um, he he has sort of very retrograde views on like how a marriage should work, you know, right. that he's like the man he should decide and so on. Although I guess he's he's deferring some of that by asking her to make the decision. Right. But yeah, I, I think ultimately he's just meant to be kind of this like slippery, um like weak character. Yeah. You know? And and it's funny because uh, he is in a way uh, a stand in for Godard, so he's almost Criticizing himself in a way mm-hmm. for being this kind of like undecisive, unsure mm-hmm. um, kind of person. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then we get, you know, this gun is lingering out there. <laughs> There's so much suspicion and nothing ever happens. Yeah. With a gun. It's a it's 
like red herring isn't a strong enough yeah he, uh, word he falls for, asleep for what happens. by the water and then um when she writes the letter to him she yeah. says like i found your revolver i took all the bullets out and right. i'm out of here yeah and that is uh intercut with her leaving with jack palance in right. that sports car Supposedly, and, uh, just to get a ride back to the city, right. back to Rome or something. Right, she's going to be a typist, and he he kills them. Yeah, he pulls yeah. out and gets like hammered by a, by an eighteen wheeler, which is or a gas truck. Yeah, or which is um that's something Godard does a ton in his sixties uh, films again. Just like an abrupt. Yeah, just like uh, not even really like breathless ended like that, right? Yes, yeah, breathless ends like that. A lot of his films end like that. Really, where um because I, I think for him, I feel like. His characters, most of the time, are less three-dimensional real people Mm -hmm. than they are almost like propositions or they represent a certain position intellectually or... They like they're symbolic of something, right? But they're they're a little bit more like pawn, you know, chess pieces that he can kind of move around. Yeah. Um, and and so like killing them off to him, I think it's just sort of he doesn't want to write like a happily ever after. And he doesn't want to just like fade out on people doing some random action or whatever. Is he? Is he? Does he not know how to end it? The movie? Kind of. Well, although it lazy? that that comes from the novel too. The, oh, the that, really? Them both dying like that. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, although it's right. different. Um, apparently, in the novel, they they have like a fender bender or something, and she somehow she snaps her neck, and and you know dies. Oh, but interesting. the the producer doesn't noticed this for a long time so he's just driving down the road and she's dead next to him he doesn't oh, know it my God. it's kind of ghastly yeah but um yeah so Godard does the uh, especially the the use of them going under like a, an oil tanker yeah, like yeah. that you know um that that's that's sort of his commentary i think on again it's like it's a highway there's like an 18 wheeler right it's sort of it's modern life like mm-hmm. i think really like i would say within the context of this film you could read that that ending as like if you think back to Homer, mm-hmm. if you think back to like classical tragedy and so on, death is meant to have so much more significance and mm-hmm. weight to it. And and like the the form of your death should almost be a reflection of like the form of your life. Mm-hmm. And it should sort of be almost like the 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 zenith or the 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 kind of like the, the final outcome mm-hmm. of everything that's led to this moment. Mm-hmm. Whereas in modernity, it could just be a random accident on the highway and it means right. nothing. And and there's no greater like meaning or satisfaction or catharsis to be drawn from it. Yeah. It's just kind of like, yeah, he just got, you know, he, he made a mistake when he was driving and he yeah. pulled out. He, he he peels out in like a very aggressive way, yeah, true yeah. to his character, you uh-huh. know? So, I mean, some of that too, it's like he's he's been kind of undone by his own yeah. like aggressiveness or something. But yeah, I think it's I think it's just meant to be like disconcerting mm-hmm. and, and disconnected from the rest of the film in a way. Because yeah. it just happens, you know? Yeah, it's also, uh, I just now am realizing, kind of the only interaction with the real world in the film. Yeah. They're in his villa. They're yeah. in his other villa. Right. They're on the studio lot. Yeah. I guess they're in that theater in the one scene. They're in the screening room. They're in the apartment. Like, no one's ever in a store. Yeah. No well, one's they, ever on the street. No and, one's ever interacting exactly. with any outside world yeah. except for this final time. And they get, you know, hammered by a truck. Yeah. Well, he really empties all the exterior shots of, like, any other people, unless it's, like, the crew or something. Yeah, but I mean, there are people You never see people, people just, like, milling around, like, Like, you get town. rid of the theater scene, and there's, yeah. like, six people in this movie. Which well, is, I guess the film crew, but... Yeah, but he's he's definitely, like, that, That I think, gives the film a certain feeling of abstraction. Yeah, A certain sure. feeling of unreality, and a certain feeling of, like, we're kind of looking at the real world, but uh-huh. we're looking at it from this kind of askew sort of angle. Hal Hartley. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so interesting. Yeah. I'm glad to know that I was... 
on base with that comparison. Oh, for sure. Because yeah. as I was watching it, I was like, I feel a lot this of how, is how Hartley, Hartley going yeah, on. Absolutely. I love that they're they're pals. Yeah. One more thing, uh, we you know we've gone way past the scene, but the scene in the screening room mm-hmm. when uh, uh, Michelle Peekley has a, a comment to the effect something about culture, mm-hmm. and Prokosha's response to him is, "When I hear the word culture, that's when I get out my checkbook." Right. And that is a that is a tweak of a Goebbels quote. Oh wow! Uh, when I hear the word culture, that's when I reach for my revolver. Wow! And so Godard is equating the two things. Yeah, He's saying, with a, a Nazi. yeah, 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 and and capitalism with like fascism. Yeah, because he's essentially saying that under fascism, it's like physical might that you know that's where power exists mm-hmm. and the the ability to basically kill your opponents. Yeah. outright. And, you know, Godard is saying under the capitalist system, that's how you buy people and make them do what you want them to do. Right. And it's like Michelle Piccoli doesn't want to do this film, but he's probably going to do it mm-hmm. because, you know, as, as Jack Palance says, I heard you have a very beautiful wife. Right. You know? It's like you're you are not you're not free to make your own decisions. Yeah. It's like you there are these external pressures that are that are acting on you. And it's just interesting that he also has that that uh, that parallel um with like the the Nazi and uh-huh. the producer and so on, because um, Fritz Lang was offered oversight of the entire German film industry oh, really? by Goebbels. Wow! Uh, he called him to his office and he said, you know, basically like I want you to run the whole film industry in Germany. Uh-huh. And Fritz Lang like left the country that night and was just like, I got to get out of here. Wow! And he, you know, he eventually made his way to the United States and Holy cow. had a whole second career in Hollywood. Yeah, man. Yeah. So. Uh, Quite an experience watching this movie. It was not what I thought it was going to be. It was uh, confounding in a lot of ways. Um, And, like, it it is staying with me. Yeah. And, like, it's a movie I want to see again. But um, they're tough nuts to crack, you know? Absolutely. Because you don't sit there and think, like, oh, man, I'm really loving this. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, It's provocative and heady. And it really, really, you got to put your thinking cap on. To watch these films. It's a, yeah, it's a very different way of engaging with a movie. Totally. Uh, it's it's completely counterintuitive to what we're used to, just right. like the kind of pleasure of, of becoming absorbed in like a story. Yeah, and, and, the, st- and the three-act structure yeah. and the, uh, everything we know about film and are used to, which um, kind of makes me wonder, is that is that like just because we're used to it? That is the thing. We're conditioned to like think of it that way. Yeah. Sure. Or was that the superior story? Yeah. You know, like those the, the, seven best, stories the best way whatever. for it to go. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I think, I think Adart is just somebody that is interested in, in pushing the medium forward. Sure. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's really inspirational to me that the films that he's making today, mm-hmm. he made a film in 3D called Goodbye to Language that is like the most experimental thing anybody's made in like mm-hmm. a long time in, in that in that medium of, of 3D especially right. to do a 3D film where for instance at one point you know like when they make a 3D film you have two cameras mm-hmm. side by side each of them is kind of imitating the left eye or the right eye of right. the viewer and in uh, in Goodbye to Language he has a moment where one of the two cameras pans and the other stays in place <laughs> so as you're watching it your brain is actually receiving these two different images wow. 
And and the you know at first they're together and then they diverge, uh-huh. and it's sort of like you can close one eye and see one picture, close the other eye, see the other picture. Yeah, and it's it sort of like gives you a headache, and it's like uh-huh. your your brain almost like rejects what's going on. <laughs> and he's doing this in his eighties. Yeah, yeah, and and wow. then and then it, the camera pans back, and then the image becomes like the Pole. same image again. Uh-huh. And I love stuff like that. I mean, I love that he is still. He's he's more radical now in his 80s than yeah. he was even, you know, when he was a younger person in like his 30s making That's great. his first films. So cool. Yeah. Uh what's up next? Do you know? I don't know actually. This is this is the this is the first time that like my my cue of stuff that I had kind right. of in my head. Well, let's um, think about it. Yeah. Um here's what I think maybe we should do is uh and maybe not as just a straight up alternate, mm-hmm. but uh do films like this. That are a little headier and tougher, sure, and perhaps foreign, sure, and then mix those in with uh, some stuff that's a bit more accessible, sure, sure. But maybe I would love to keep underrated, doing, underseen. Yeah, yeah, I would love to keep doing stuff like this though, because I think like a large portion of American audiences haven't seen Godard stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's cool to cool to broaden the horizons. And yeah, I encourage everyone to see this movie. Yeah, um, it looks the the one I got looked really good. There's there's through, a few uh, there's a few shots that whatever. are kind of beat up um, yeah. where it's like they had to use an older print for certain scenes or uh-huh. something but um looked so pretty I pretty good on my TV. It looked good. There's yeah, there's maybe maybe what you saw is even a different transfer than what's on the Blu-ray. There's there's a few shots that are like kind of crunchy looking. Yeah. But um yeah, overall very very beautiful looking film. All right, well we'll figure it out everybody, but uh thanks again to Casey. Thank you, sir. And go watch Contempt. Yeah. What's the French title? Le, Le Mépris. Le, Le Mépris. Le Mépris. And yeah, 1963 Godard. Awesome. There's a there's a Criterion DVD that's long, long time out of print. Had some great extras on it. Yeah. There's a there's a Blu-ray out, that's out now that's non-Criterion, and I hope the film will eventually you know return to the Criterion stable. They'll be able to put out a new right. version of it. But awesome. For now, yeah, you can. I think you can also stream it. That's what you did, right? Yeah. yeah. iTunes. Yep. Look good. Yeah. Find it. Check it out. All right. Thanks everyone, and thank you, my friend. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. Give your glucose alerts and readings from the G7. Do not match symptoms or expectations. Use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. 
Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.